Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Welcome to What Are You Doing Here? Thanks to AATC, Australasian Academy of Tennis Coaches, providing quality coach education across the globe. Courses delivered by industry leaders and tennis business owners. Learn locally, coach globally, internationally endorsed. Inquire and enrol at aatc.tennis. Question we ask everyone: What are you doing here? What am I doing here? Um, we're in Chateaubriand in the rain. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a bit annoying. It's been raining on and off for the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here with James Duckworth, which uh, I've been coaching for the last 16 months. Um, an excellent year last year. He's just come back from hip surgery after the Australian Open. Sure. Yeah. Um, so he's on the mend. Okay. Um, and third tournament back now. Third tournament back. Yeah. He. Um, had the hip surgery straight after the Australian Open, and it was out for four and a half months with that. Okay. So we came back just before the French Open. Um, slightly underdone, as, you, as you'd imagine. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, done enough matches under the belt, and just trying to get more and more matches as we go through the grass court season here. Okay, so how did you come to start working with Ducks? I finished my career in 2007, um, straight after Wimbledon, and as with pretty much any player on the tour, I'm not sure which direction you're going to go. At the time, my dad was very ill so I was finishing my career not knowing really which way direction I was going but wanted to spend the time he was he was terminally ill unfortunately so uh, in 2007 I finished at Wimbledon made the third round everything was high and then I was told by my mother that my dad's got 10 months to live so I switched off completely from tennis at that stage and pretty much directed all my focus on, on just being around him, being with him and seeing out the last sure. moments of his life. Yeah, okay. From then on, uh, we had a court in our backyard, so I, I, was, I was actually playing more golf. After, after he passed away, I thought, I'm just going to take some time off here and, okay. and play more golf than anything else. And I, uh, I was playing yep. two or three times a week, um, loving my golf, playing competitions, and that was the thing that probably took that void from playing on the tour to then playing some competitive something or other yeah, right. outside of the tennis. And that, that was holding pretty good, but I probably I needed to do something, so I was, I was coaching two or three girls in the backyard less than 15 hours a week. Yeah. You know, but there were, there were two girls and they were highly motivated to try and get to college. So we right. went through that process to try and get them up to speed. There were two country girls. Yep, um, okay. And way behind way behind the eight ball in terms of their, their time on court. So I was just trying to get that time on court and trying to get their technique to a, to a spot where they could go into a Division One school um, over in the States, which they both eventually did. Okay. I was pretty happy with that. Yeah. Um, and where were you living at the time? I was living in Melbourne. Um, we were living in Kuyong, right, right near the Kuyong there. I, was, I had a court in the backyard, which is um, 200 metres away from, from the actual courts there at Kuyong. I was sort of picking and choosing between my golf times. Yeah, right. When, when, when to go on court in the afternoon with, with these girls, and I had a couple other clients as well, which uh, sort of kept me busy, but it, it didn't really motivate me at the same time. Right. Okay. So that, that was your first 
first kind of entry into coaching, what were your big influences? Obviously, you were a great player, had a big-time career for Australia, Davis Cup, Wimbledon, lots of big achievements. You must have worked with pretty good coaches or some strong influences through your playing career. When, when I first went out onto the tour, I was pretty raw. I, my, my dad brought me up, he played Davis Cup for Ireland back in the 60s and he coached me but with sort of old school technique. I was certainly behind the eight ball when I went out to the tour when I was 18, 19 um, and a guy called Barry Phillipsmore had a group of players. He had some top players at that time, it was Mark Woodford and Carl Limberger. Uh, they were the two sort of top tier players and then he had a group of guys that he took away more to fund his little tour. Right, okay. But I ended up having for a year and a half with him, also Brent Larkham who coached me on the tour. He was also in that group and we were sort of mentored by, by Barry Phillips Moore. Okay. He then stopped on the tour probably about 18 months after I started on the tour. Right, okay. So I had that, again, I had this void of... No, no coach on the tour. I wasn't quite good enough. There was a group of four or five players who then got picked up by Tennis Australia mm. and I was sort of left behind. And my career sort of started very, very patchy in terms of having someone tell me what to do and all day, every day, which way to do, how to, how to play, the technique, all that sort of stuff. So I was wandering around on the doubles tour for a little bit. Got to a ranking of about 290. As it happens to be, Brent Larkham, who was my best mate, who was trying to play on the tour at 22, he exploded this in his back and he started coaching me a year and a half later. Okay, yeah. Everything's, everything went from there, from when I was the age of 26 to 35. Okay. He, he was a big part of my um, upbringing, I suppose, my, and my rise through the rankings. Your development as a player. Yeah, yeah. so in terms of... The coaching that I saw from him, mm. the coaching that I now do today, mm. is quite influenced by what he did with me. Okay. And one of the big things that he implemented was tactical-wise. Um, yeah. At, at 26, I was. It was very hard to change the technique, but we could actually change the way I played. So yeah, I went sure. From sort of hacking around the baseline and not knowing what I was doing to being really structured, serve volleying, and it completely changed my my own career around. So I feel like the things that I do with players, and we'll get onto this a little bit more when I was, I was coaching the younger kids, was more about what suits the personality of that player. Okay. You, you can't make everybody into perfect technique. You, you've got you've to implement what they can do and, and best utilise what they can do on the court. And yeah, think, sure. And I think that was the biggest influence that I had from Brent going into the coaching realms. Okay, okay. So obviously, if we're looking at that, then tactics, structure, how to play, probably a thing for more advanced players, I guess. Uh, do you feel like that kind of stuff has helped you? You've coached juniors, you've coached transition tour players, and you've coached now on the, on the main tour. Do uh, you feel like that's helped you more with one group of players or another? Yeah, as, as you go through the ranks. So in 2010, uh, I was approached by Tennis Australia to go and, and coach within the Tennis Australia National Academy structure. Sure, okay. Um, so I was given um, a group of, actually one young boy, he was 11, he was sort of outstanding at, at the time. Okay. We, we only sort of brought in 12-year-olds, but he was 11, so we brought him in. Um, very good technique-wise, very poor mentally. Uh, and then there's a couple other guys who I ended up coaching throughout my 
process at Tennis Australia for about six or seven years. Um, one of them being Mark Polmans, my coach from 11 to 17. Yeah, and as, as you go through this process and you're learning more about coaching, you're understanding what he needs, what happens at home. A lot, a lot of different influences influence how he's playing and mentally thinking out on the court. One of the biggest things for me was the time that he spends with me, I could be telling him stuff. Yeah, the time sure. That he's getting in, and the words that he's getting at home is completely different. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it, it's at the junior ranks, I think, and, and it still happens, obviously, that at the higher level. The influence that the family has on, on the younger players is, is very, very big. And yeah. you've got to try and build relationships behind the scenes with, with, these, with these players to actually understand what makes them tick at both ends of the clock. Right, yeah. Um, so that was a real big learning curve for me. Uh, yeah. I've never had to deal with that at all. Mm. So, so dealing with the parental side of things and then making changes to, to these kids' techniques over a period of time. You're not looking at, you're trying to make this kid into the, a superstar by the time they're 14. You're looking at changing their, their technique, changing their process, changing their mental thinking over a long period of time. So you're, de- you're trying to develop these kids into better players. You're not, you're not trying to perform at this stage, I don't, I don't feel. It's more about getting their processes in a line so when they go out on a tour, that they're technically sound, they're mentally getting better. I don't think any kid, unless you're an absolute freak, like a Nadal or like an Alcaraz these days, who is mentally so stable by the time they're 17, 18, that process takes a little bit longer time. Yeah, sure. And yeah. I think it's there's a lot of the reason why some of these talented players never actually make it, because their mental stability, their, men, their mental structure never actually gets, gets them... Um, to a, to a spot where they can just compete day in, day out. Right. So that was an interesting time. So I, so I took young kids, developing kids, took them to lots of different um, tournaments, ranging from national tournaments to right international level. Right, yeah. And then, and then my second half of my Tennis Australia career, I was, I was probably taking guys that were transitioning then from 17, 18, the last years of juniors. Yeah, sure. And then going out on the tour. And hopefully we put in place at that stage enough travel behind them to understand what's going on on the tour. It's very difficult being Australian yeah, to, to yeah. get that amount of travel and get that amount of exposure to the to day in, day out, week in, week out. Yeah, lots of long flights and long yeah, yeah. trips as well. Yeah. Longer than yeah. sort of the Americans and the Europeans. Yeah, some of the, yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest issues that we have as an Australian player to yeah. understand the sporting world. I don't think they understand how much travel is involved in tennis on a weekly basis, the, on a yearly basis. The players don't? Or, I think the public and, and the players the, don't. The, and the yes. public perception of tennis is what they see in the big tournaments. Yeah, sure. And you see you know, high life and all that sort of stuff, but it's a 40-week process for a lot of these guys trying to cut their cut their tooth on, on the tour. Yeah. And it's a travel from one tournament to the next, generally not at the highest level. So you're taking trains, planes, buses, whatever it is, um, to tournaments and you're trying to play as many tournaments as you can to get a ranking. Yeah, sure. So I think it's probably good to explain it for the public as well and the people listening. Uh, the big difference, I guess, between what it takes coming from Australia as opposed to what it would take coming from America and coming from Europe is there's a lot more localised travel within America and Europe for for kids and players trying to become professionals. Yeah, so that's, that, that's right. Um, at the lowest level of, a, of the pro tour, it's called Futures. 
Yeah. And the amount of futures that they have in America is, I mean, it's a 52-week year. You're going to get probably 40 weeks of those. You can yeah. actually play within, within your own country. Yeah. Whereas Australia, we have, I think it's eight, maybe, maybe 10 weeks. Yeah, of sure. The, of this future level, we have the next next level up. We have four or six challenges, and then we have obviously the Grand Slams, which everyone sees on the TV. Yeah. So the amount of travel that an Australian needs to do is outside of their country is huge compared to a European. A European, you can in Italy, there's 35 tournaments at that, yeah. that level. Well, yeah. I mean, Spain it's, it's the big difference 30. between being able to base at home for 80 percent of the year, or having to find a base somewhere else either in America or Europe for the Aussies and you're basically gone from latest April till earliest September yeah, yeah so. we, get, we get very jealous as Australians that these players they can play one week and then they can trough home if they lose early they, yeah. they, they, they go home for three days yeah whereas we, we have to find the next tournament the next hotel and and you don't have that base to go back to and and put your stuff down live in your own live in your own bedroom live in your own live in your own bed yeah, yeah so it's, it's very it's a very tough process especially when you're first going out on the tour yeah so my role as tennis Australia sort of mentor going out on the tour from the juniors which is a bit more cushy I suppose you, you go on tours and it's only a short period where you go out of Australia you go four or five weeks you go back to Australia sort of train again they've got to start to learn that this this is pretty bloody tough yeah you know, to be out there for four or five months in a row potentially and try and compete at a very high level week in week out sorts the boys from the men that's for sure the yeah. girls from the women yeah sure yeah, you really understand or begin to understand if you actually like the sport or not because traveling yeah. and being away from home being away from your friends sacrificing a lot of things behind the scenes is is a huge part of being a tennis player not just hitting balls yeah yeah so do you feel like your experience doing that for yourself as a player how do you feel like that's impacted your coaching or your understanding of what those players are going to either going to have to go through in the future or you know, in James's case now, he's going through it, or he's already been through it, but yeah. still going through it now. Yeah. I've seen I've seen both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I've been at the bottom low, bottom rung, and I was there for probably too long uh, because uh, because I didn't maybe have the structure behind me um, early on between 20 and 24 years old. So I've seen the lower level and and the, and the pitfalls that you can fall into you know, of, of not training properly of. Um, staying out too late or, or doing doing some wrong things and then I've seen the other end where everything becomes very professional everything's very structured I can use the knowledge that I gain from being at the highest end to try and then install good habits to these guys when they're first going out on the tour some take it in and I, yep. love, a, I love a coachable kid yeah, which, yeah sure. which encompasses a lot of things yep encompasses wanting to change on the court wanting to be better wanting to be better off the court as well and if you're not coachable, it's one of my biggest philosophies is being coachable. Yeah. Uh, if you're not coachable, I don't think I don't think you've got any chance on, unless you're an exceptional talent. And there's not many of those out there. We we can name a few. Yeah, as sure. You know. Yeah. But there's not many guys who need to be not actually coached but mentored in in certain in certain things that they do right and certain things that they do wrong within their own careers. Yeah. And, and if if they're guided in the right way and they have the desire you're going to reach your potential yeah and I don't like seeing guys 
not reaching their full potential because they're not coachable. And I've, yeah. had, I've had a few of those guys through the academy and it's been very frustrating. Yeah, right. You can you can teach them the right ways and, and they just don't want to know just because they shut it out and they think they're know-it-all or they think they or they maybe not have the have, have the self-belief. And that's a, that's a different story going yeah. with the mental side of things. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long at the National Academy then for you? I ended up being there for uh, nearly 10 years. So 2010 right through to 2020, just before COVID struck, I was still there. And then I decided to part ways with, with Tennis Australia sure. for a couple of different reasons. I was probably getting a little bit stale, I felt. And there was an opportunity also to go with James was to be the first opportunity that I've actually gone at the highest level because he was already an established top under player. Right. And I felt that was a pretty good opportunity just to break in the system from being within the system. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. sure. And that's, like you said, that's your first time coaching on the tour. Yeah. How, how much has the tour changed since you were a player on the tour? Big thing that I noticed from when I played, so I finished in 2007, so it's now 15 years ago. Yep. How professional everybody is now. Okay. Like on my day, probably in the beginning, it was even less than it was towards the end, but everybody now at this level, at the highest level, seem to be able to afford a coach and a physio or a trainer. Yep. So the warm-ups that you see in the, in the locker room or in the, in, the, in the gym before everybody starts now is so much more... Specific. Specific. Developed. Developed. Yeah. Rigid. Yeah. Whereas we, we'd go in there, we'd do a couple of stretches with, uh, and then get out and hit on the court where these guys are foam rolling. They're doing 25 minutes each before they're actually going yep. out and striking balls maybe even longer and that was the most striking thing for me when I first came out on the tour was yep. how professional a whole lot of guys are now not, yep. not just a small bunch in the beginning when I was probably when I was first travelling and that got better and better obviously yep. the second thing is probably and this is probably not just now this is probably gone back and probably by the time I'd finished how competent everybody is both forehand backhand serve especially on the men's tour Okay. Yeah. yeah so they're tri- everyone's tri-dimensional these days. You know, it's very hard to pick a hole in, in, in any in any player. Yeah. Changing your game just slightly is probably the biggest key in going further up the rankings. I don't think there's big changes that many many guys make. Many yeah. many guys make at this at this stage, but it's little tweaks of what you have and your arsenal that you have that you possess. Yeah, sure. That can then give you a little bit of edge. Yeah. Understanding where guys serve under pressure, understanding where they hit it under pressure. Like the, the tactical wise of getting back to the tactical stuff is where I think James and I have changed his fortunes around probably in the last 18 months. Yeah, he had a great year last year, yeah. I, I came to with him in end of 2019. I did a little bit of work. He was sort of in the academy and I, I saw I travelled a little bit with him, but not more than one or two tournaments a year. And so it's, I knew what he did and how he played and, and structured and was and saw things within his game that I thought we could change a little bit. He'll probably say it's wrong, but I, I don't know, remember the time frames as such, but he had an elbow surgery. He can't fully extend his elbow. This surgery extended it just a little bit more, so he lost contact point on his forehand. Okay. And the forehand reshape is probably the biggest thing that we did together before he went out on the tour. End of 2020. Yeah, okay. End of 2020, um, 
had to he lost his forehand swing and we had to we had to do some technical stuff on that which is exciting to be able to make a change sure at 28 yeah. well you're yeah. making the change because you're forced into yeah, making yeah, the you're change, forced, right? forced into that change yeah and and then be quite a good weapon throughout 2021 yeah where he had a great year some serving things that we we use as well um he's got a great serve great speed his, his percentage was very low yep generally so we worked on not having to hit hit the spots better but not at greatest at, at great speeds that he was trying to hit the spots yeah sure so we're, we're using his slice serve a little bit better using his kick serve a little bit better understanding that if you hit a 190 on the spot is better than a 215 mm-hmm. more more so central yeah sure so those, those things are a couple of things um, and then tactically wise using his forehand in different spots a little bit a little bit better yeah um, and it wasn't wasn't huge but it made a big difference and you get some wins and you start to get confidence and you start believing that you belong in the top 50, which he ended up uh, the year at 47 or 48. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and he beat you know, quite a few guys in the top 20, top 30 guys. Yeah, kind of snowballed for him last year huh? because I think I saw him at the start of the year in some challenges in Nur Sultan and he was just kind of getting going yeah. and struggling a little bit with finding some form yeah. what turned it around you weren't with him at the tournaments at that point not at that stage we were working behind the scenes obviously yeah yep. the forehand probably took a little bit of time to, to get going yep and then from Miami where he beat Goffin made it the third round I think belief is a huge thing for him really really big thing once once he started to believe that he could he could beat guys inside the top 50 on a regular basis the belief in the structures that we put in place become a lot easier to achieve a lot easier to keep on going okay this is the way forward and this is what's working for me belief in in the serving stuff that we're doing belief in his forehand a little bit more belief in coming forward and trying to trying to pressurize guys more and more and that's what he sort of bases his game around he's not going to go toe-to-toe sideways with these guys he's going to, he's going to pressurize guys and use his position on the second serve up in the court to return the guy at speed and then and then try and go first second ball and get them off the court as quickly as possible and trying to win the point in the first two or three hits yeah um, sure when he got some wins he started to believe that that was the right way forward mm-hmm. and yeah as you said it snowballed from there he made a third round of Wimby he's never made a third round of Wimby before played some hardcore stuff he played pretty well I uh, wasn't there he beat Sinner um, in Toronto and then we came back US Open he had, tough, he had a tough loss there, lost some two sets to love up against um, Potero after the US Open. He got some more confidence by going to a, a challenger in Turkey and winning it. Mm-hmm. And that was a big key for him because he, he didn't want to go back because he'd been playing at the high level and he yep. didn't want to go back and play a challenger. Yeah, it sort sure. of forced him to go and play it mm-hmm. and he won it and he got even more confidence going, yeah, I've got through this tournament, didn't lose a set. Risky conversation when you, or risky decision when you do this, right? Because Yeah, yeah it always is, you know. <laughs> you know? Sort of not believing that they can play at that level, but I just wanted him to. After he, he hurt himself at the US Open, and we need to sort of it was like a reset button. You hurt yourself, he lost first round of the US Open and first round the week before after having match points in both of those matches. To go and play a challenge was a real risky thing, as, yeah. as you say, because his, his mentality is I don't really want to play, I don't really want to play it. Yeah, yeah you can take a, yeah, yeah, a loss can, to a player ranked can, much lower. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can send the confidence even a bit further down after yeah. he just had match points in two bigger tournaments. To his credit, he after his first round, he, he, he hung tough and he didn't lose a set in that tournament. Approved himself and then went on straight off to Nur Sultan the week after and made his first 250 final. 
Yeah, sure. And yeah. beat some pretty good quality players along the way. Yep. Unfortunately, didn't get done in the final. Another step in the right direction in terms of what we've been implementing and yep. now coming to fruition. Yeah, some sure. of the things that you implement early, early on don't necessarily come straight away. Mm-hmm. But if you keep on working at it and believing that it's the right way forward, yep. at some stage in, down in the season, it'll, it'll actually happen. And his, his block of real good tennis came at the back end of 2021. Yep. Where he went on at the end of the year to make the quarterfinals of a of a thousand Masters Series event. Yeah, in Lost Paris. To yeah. In a real tight seven five and a third. Yep. Beat Batista a good. Beat Mazzetti. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, he was playing good tennis in the in the yeah. indoor season at the back yeah, really, back end really of the was, year. Yeah. 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 So you say it's it's fifteen years for you since you stopped playing, and then you're back at the tour. Um, how do you see your progression as a coach? So obviously you're done as a player. Um, do you, you feel like you had to learn a bunch of new skills or it's pretty easy, you can just sort of teach what you already know from playing or how did, how did it work for you as a coach? I certainly thought I knew more than I did when I, when I first got onto the, onto the tour and you know what you know as a player. Yep. And you know what you know from the coaches that you've had in the past. Mm-hmm. But do you actually know how to teach technique? Do you actually know how to change technique if someone's not hitting the right way? I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. So the process that I had through the through TA helped me do that with the, some of the courses that we did. Yeah. So you're you done the done high, the high performance, performance course, course, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, and one of the benefits of that was learning biomechanics. Yeah. Of, of all the shots, and I think that yeah. was the, that was the most relevant thing for me. With Bruce, that course. Bruce did Bruce Elliott yeah, come Bruce in and, and do yours? And yeah. Mark Reed as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was great. I love to be able to change someone's technique, but also knowing how to change someone's technique. You can, you can see it, and most coaches can see what they need to do. Yep. But how to, how actually, to get how from to point, a to point, point B. A to point B yep. was a learning skill and I'm probably still learning that now. Yeah, I think yeah, I think from from my experience it's kind of different mm-hmm. with a lot of people. There's a lot of different yeah. triggers and a lot of different ways and yeah, there certainly is. Um, yeah. I, I really couldn't understand because the serving came so easily easily to me when, yep. I, when I played. Yeah. I had a couple of guys who didn't have the arm speed that I, I had and didn't have the easy motion. I'm why yeah. can't you do it? I'll, <laughs> I'll show you. I'll just, I'll play, you just just follow me. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that sort of learning skill took some time to mm-hmm. understand, okay, this guy has got deficiencies here, okay, he just hasn't got a fast arm, okay, yeah. how, do, how do we develop him getting into a perfect position and using other parts of his body to, to get speed on the ball? Yeah, sure. So that was the, that was the first, first bit of my journey, I think, is understanding that you don't know it all yep. and, willing to le- and willing to learn. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and yep. that learning curve was initially quite slow and then it, by the end of it, quicker and having the tools then to change people's technique having said that if someone's able to hit that ball in the court under pressure when it matters and their technique is a bit funky learning to leave it alone yeah yeah Yeah. not thinking with it too much okay this guy's got something special but you look at someone like a jensen booksby right now Yep. You wouldn't teach anything that he hits. Yeah, sure. All yeah. his technique is completely funky, but he gets away with it because he's bloody determined. What you're looking for is solutions to problems, right? Yeah. So if the guy can put the ball in mm-hmm. in any given circumstance, yeah. then he's, he's got the solution yeah. for the problem. That's right. Otherwise, yeah. that's yeah. when you sort of need to start so again, thinking we, we about intervening. To, we don't need to nitpick and everyone needs to be exactly perfect. Yeah. You know? 
if he can do it when it matters and under pressure, yeah, you'll fine tune it. Uh, and as he gets stronger, he'll find different ways as well. So understanding that talking to talking to the player is also a big component. You you just don't tell them everything. You know? They yeah. won't listen. In this day and age, the kids do not listen to you just telling them what to do. They need feedback. You need feedback from them, and then it becomes a an amicable situation where okay, you bit can, more you collaborative, can talk, yeah, yeah. more collaborative these days and sort of probably in our day. Yeah, where you were told <laughs> to do this, 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 and this. You, yeah. you probably didn't feel like it was right half the time, but you you complied with it. Whereas the guys these days have a bigger voice, and you've got to be willing to listen to it. So I guess you and I come into coaching probably obviously from different directions. Uh, I've played a bit in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, not after that at all didn't have much of a playing career to speak of especially when if we talk about on a professional level probably different i would have coached much more lower level players than you you're into national academy Mm -hmm. and above straight away where would you say your biggest interest within coaching is? is is your biggest passion here at the tour level or maybe with developing juniors i nearly like both ends of the spectrum yeah i like to be able to develop a kid and change his technique within the realms of what we were talking about before. Yeah, sure. And see him develop. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum where you, you're seeing the best players and you're competing against the best players in the world, which yep. you're doing right now. Yeah. And that's the development side of things, and this is performance side of things. So developing somebody into a better player, whereas this one is all about how am I going to beat this guy down the other end. And finding a way, even though you may not have the tools, to beat somebody. Mm-hmm. That's pretty exciting as well. Yeah. Um, when you're working with guys who may not have the, the best technique, may not have the best physical abilities, and then sorting ways out to, to beat guys who have those better attributes and, and beat them is, is pretty exciting as well. I've really enjoyed my time right now being, being on the tour. Yes. And working with James and, and finding ways he can beat guys who maybe people think they shouldn't be beating and that, that's pretty exciting yeah initially sort of yeah. bre- breaking new ground yeah, and breaking then massive new ground for him um, yeah and that's pretty exciting and then the next level is trying to keep that yeah then it becomes keep, a new challenge yeah, of, new, new, new challenge of okay guys are now looking at you and see what you do and then you're going to try and develop a little bit more as well to try and keep your level against those guys mm-hmm so what does you what does your year look like now? So you, obviously we're in Hertogenbosch at the moment, getting ready for in the lead up tournaments to Wimbledon. Yeah. What what does the proposed rest of the year look like for you? I'm living in Brisbane. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously with the disjointed first five months of the year for him, we're in a bit of catch up mode. Yep. In terms of the amount of tournaments that he would play, so we're looking at here, and we've gone and play Queens next week, Eastbourne, which is another two fifty. And then in, in Wimbledon, that's where the grass got season ends. Usually he would take some time back in Australia to reset, yep. as he likes to do. But having not played the matches previously in the, in the season, um, he may look at something in, over in the States where in Newport. Yep. That's another grass court tournament in, in Rhode Island. So depending on how Wimbledon goes... Um, the final end for the grass court season. Sorry? The final end for the grass the court final, season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, and that leads straight into the, if you if you play Newport, that leads straight into the hardcourt season over in the States. Yeah, um, it's one or two weeks off, right? Yeah, there's one week between Newport and then I think it's uh, I think Atlanta. It's Atlanta, Atlanta. Yeah. It goes into Washington and then a couple of Masters series and then leads on to the US Open. Um, and he doesn't want to miss too many of those hardcourt. Yep. That, that's his best service yep. on the hardcourt. So 
depending how he's feeling mentally and, and physically. He might take a break after Wimbledon. Mm. If not, he'll go on to Newport and then straight on to the States. Yep. He's got a couple of friends. Maybe he can take a, take a week off somewhere in, in those times to catch up on the time that he wouldn't have some mental rest yeah some mental rest as well as physical yeah over in the states yeah so he could possibly go there and then that leads straight into the into the indoor season there's sultan where he made the final last year is straight after the u.s open so fingers crossed that the asian swing is on this year which it hasn't been due to covid reasons there's quite a few tournaments in china in beijing Uh, i mean tokyo this is not in china it's in japan and he's generally played pretty well in those tournaments as well so fingers crossed that those are on and that that leads back into the european indoor season um, finishing the season end of october what's your plans are you planning to be everywhere he is or are you trying to go home or what's uh, how does he look for you i would probably i will be going home after wimbledon i need some time back at home i have a 16 year old daughter and a wife <laughs> probably yeah. want me back for a few weeks probably three weeks is enough yeah um and then head out back to the states probably a few weeks before the u.s open Mm-hmm. going right through to probably you know, Sultan and a couple of those indoor ones. Whether I make it through right to the end or I need another break, we'll discuss um, probably after the US Open. Depends how it's going. Yeah, it depends yeah. how it's going, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't do what I did last year. The, the COVID situation was pretty bad for Australians last year. I travelled two weeks before Paris Yep. right through to Wimbledon. So it was about an eight-week stretch. Yep. And then I quarantined for two Have weeks. Have to do the two weeks, yeah. Back in Australia, which is pretty brutal, after knowing that you're going to get home and then you can't get out of a room for two weeks. And then I came back a week before the US Open and did another nine-week stint and a two-week quarantine again. I can't do that again. Yeah. There's too many weeks in a row, so hopefully I can get another break after the US Open or after a couple of weeks in, in uh, New Sultan and, and beyond and then go again towards the end of the so year. So you wouldn't want to be away for sort of any more than eight to ten weeks? Yeah, I'm, maybe. Trying, to, I'm trying to sort of max it out at six or seven. Yep. This first in the French Open right through to women is always tricky to get any sort of break. Yep. The grass court season, he needs to play as much as he can on that yeah, grass court sure. season. So trying to find those breaks is a bit of a task. Aside from that, any other projects that you have in tennis or this is your full-time and fully focused for James? Um, at the moment, I'm fully focused with James yep. um, on the tour. I did have a little side business down in Melbourne called Decamat, so I, I was making my own mats, my um, drag mats for the clay courts, Yeah, okay. Uh, which were distributed all around Australia uh, with a guy who was in business with a guy called John Delios uh, down in Melbourne. Yeah, sure. And my... Father's actually the mechanical engineer who was, so he laid out all the all the mathematical details on how much spread these mats took. He he, he went over to uh, I think it was Switzerland and took photos of the mats that they used over the clay courts <laughs> yeah, over right. there and made all these um, notes. And he found out that this that the mats that we use spread the court when when you dragged it yeah. in, into the perfect into the perfect number. So I had a little business like that. Um, down in Melbourne when I was there, but the stuff that we source is from Albury, and it wasn't viable financially to take the stuff up to Brisbane and then send it back down to down to Melbourne because most of our clients are in Melbourne. Yep. So I handmade everything back yep. at home in my own little 
a little shed, um, and now that's at the moment it's on hold. It's not. It's yeah, not completely not done. done. Not completely done. It still sits in the background, but at the moment it's just not financially viable. Yeah, living up in but, Brisbane. To yeah, do it. on the tennis court wise, it's it's just James. Yeah, on the tennis court wise, it's just James. At the yeah. Moment. Anything else you'd like to do before you're done with coaching? Well, I haven't really thought about it that much. I mean, if I'm not, I'm not coaching James to potentially coach someone else on the tour, I had thoughts of opening my own academy you know, under my own name, but it's probably too far gone now. My name is probably not as big as it used to be you know, 10, 15 years ago. Sure, yeah. Um, but it's also very difficult to open your own academy up in Australia at the moment. Maybe somewhere in Europe it's probably actually easier to do. Yeah. more... There's bigger population as you, know, you, you can do a certain access to a lot more tournaments as well. Access to a lot more yeah. tournaments, yeah. But at the moment, I'm pretty happy with where, where I'm at, and hopefully, you can kick some more goals with James some more goals and, and, and keep moving up the rankings. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Wayne Arthurs, thanks for your time. No problem. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.